You know how sometimes when you've got like this group of friends that you really love, you like you love them a lot and you love being around them, right? And then you've got this other friend over here that you really, really love a lot as well, but they've never met each other. And then when they're getting ready to meet each other, like you get real giddy about it. You know what I'm talking about? Right. Okay. That's how I'm feeling right now. Okay. I'm about to introduce a friend of ours to friends of ours, and I'm really excited about this. Okay. Our guest preacher this morning is Dr. Joanne Lyon. As Justin said, she's the general superintendent of the Wesleyan Church. And um, before any of you ever walk through the door of this theater ever to to worship as a part of this church, before we ever met for worship, probably about six months before that, we got to meet with her down at the corner at Spanky's. And um, we're hanging out and just kind of sharing our dream and, and our uh, our heart for what we felt God was calling us to do here. And since that moment, she's been praying for you guys and she's been believing in what is happening here. And so it's really cool to have her to be able to be here and see something that was kind of dreams and passion being communicated to her, her being able to see flesh and blood. And uh, so this is a really cool moment for us. Um, let me just tell you a little bit about Dr. Lyon um, to introduce her to you. Um, we talk a lot here about the idea that we are a part of something that's bigger than we are, okay? That we are a small expression of a much larger kingdom. And uh, as we set up every Sunday morning is a beautiful thing. We're here early and we get to hear the church bells ringing um, from the different churches on Franklin Street. And it's just a reminder to us that we are a part of something way bigger than just what is happening here. Um, within that, the history of our particular church and, and the movement that we come out of, we find our roots in a church known as the Wesleyan Church, which began back in 1843 when a guy named Orange Scott um, led a bunch of courage, courageous preachers to form this new church because they were forced out of their churches because it was around the time of the Civil War and they were preaching with all that they had against the evil of slavery. And because of that, they were forced out of their churches, and that's how the Wesleyan movement um, was formed. And so we find our heritage and our roots in that. And Dr. Lyon is one of the general superintendents over that, overseer who gives leadership and gives vision to this connection, this family of churches. Um, also, in 1996, she founded an organization called World Hope International. And we've actually, as a church, partnered with World Hope twice already um, with the Haiti response to the earthquake. And then also um, a few months back, you'll remember the first Orange Sunday that we had. We partnered with Orange uh, with uh, World Hope and, and their work um, to help stop human trafficking around the world. Um, and World Hope is active in 30 countries around the world, fighting injustice, fighting oppression, and spreading the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the hope of Christ is a holistic thing. That it begins within us and it works its way out of us. And you're going to see that heart come through in her this morning. Um, her work with World Hope has actually um, resulted in her being able to, to be a voice of influence. Um, three separate presidents have invited her to the White House to come and to share and to be a part of different panels and to have a voice in um, social justice around the world. Um, so added to that impressive resume today, She's going to be able to say she once preached in the iconic Varsity Theater. 
<laughs> on Franklin Street, right? And also that she had lunch at the legendary Mama Dips. Okay? So that resume just got padded today. Sweet. Um, so you guys help me welcome our good friend and uh, a great friend of ours, Dr. Joanne Lyon. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Am I on? Okay. Uh, and uh, also to see the results of a dream sitting at Spanky's. And what, we did I say that right? Spanky's? Okay. And uh, wasn't he some little guy on a cartoon a long time or something? Right? Anyway, that's long before your time. Uh, and, uh, uh, and to see the reality of that dream. And that's what God wants to do. He gives us dreams so they can become realities. And I love what we sang this morning. Uh, in um, uh, his love for us and, and then that love for us and that love that is poured into us even more than what we can begin to express, he then moves that out of us, the great and mighty God that he is. So I love the worship this morning. So thank all of you who participated in that. It really set us for where God is leading us these days. Um, I also did my tweet right away when Justin said tweet. So I got out my Blackberry and get, did a tweet and said, and worshiping at Love Chapel Hill Varsity Theater, loving it. So the rest of the world saw that this morning. <laughs> uh, but I just, I, I'm just encouraged to let you know, as, as Matt said so wonderfully, the Spirit of God is moving. So is the sound. <laughs> Are we doing okay here? There we go. All right. The Spirit of God is moving in this world today. I want you to know. We don't see that in the newspaper. And I read the Washington Post almost every day and uh, many, many magazines. Uh, but every once in a while, I find it interesting. In the, in the Economist magazine, there are many, many times there are little stories that talk about something about faith. And if you read The Economist, it's not a faith. It's published in Great Britain. But it's kind of like something is happening in this country. We don't quite understand what it is, but... But there's something about faith that's taking place. So we see little blips of it in the public media. But underneath, on a whole nother level, the Spirit of God is moving powerfully in this world. I want you to know, and I want to encourage you, that you're, we're part of a movement that God is bringing throughout the, the planet this day. Uh, just a very fascinating thing. I was just reflecting just a few weeks ago. Uh, I happened to be up in northern Wisconsin, where it's very cold. And uh, we, uh, the Wesleyan Church has a wonderful church up there that's really been looking at issues of reconciliation, particularly with Native Americans. And there's a Chippewa tribe in that area that has a reservation. And they have been carefully and praying and working. Well, it was very fascinating. One day, the owner of the casino, one of the uh, chiefs in the tribe, came to them and said, you know what we would love? Why don't you come to our casino and have a church service in the auditorium? And so they did. And they invited me to come there to preach on reconciliation. It was a wonderful service. And I also, you know, casinos are open 24-7, so people are, are gambling all the time. And I wonder what those people thought when that, they were pulling those levers and they were hearing, our God is an awesome God, you know, <laughs> when the band was playing and the, the music was wafting across that casino that morning. 
it was a powerful service. And as we had that service this morning, the spirit of reconciliation was present. And in fact, the pastor and I then went to the swimming pool and we had a baptismal service in the swimming pool of the casino. Uh, And it was a great, great morning. And I just thought in that time how God is moving in a variety of ways. Uh, and, And the pastor just emailed me the other day. And now he has several of the leaders from that particular um, uh, uh, reservation and some leadership training kinds of things that are taking place and the reconciliation that begins to happen, the forgiveness, the repentance that needs to come also in that process. And then reconciliation takes place. And I think about this last week as we've celebrated uh, Martin Luther King Day and, and the whole issues of racism. I happened to be in Birmingham last week during that time at the church, the first church that was bombed, the first bombings that took place, and listened as some of the people who had been there with Martin Luther King on that day, some very old, older gentlemen talk about, yet God is bringing reconciliation reconciliation we still need to work on issues of racism but God is bringing reconciliation and there was a very interesting symbol the day that bomb went into that church it bombed out the stained glass windows of Christ and a woman sitting there that morning said to someone we're not even safe in the church they even took Jesus but the stained glass window has been replaced with a wonderful Uh, picture of Christ stained glass uh, um, uh, art piece of Christ with his arm out all still come to me as you sang this morning and the love that Christ has for all of us in these times and as we look at our world today God is as I said is still present and sometimes we look at it and we think I don't think there's any hope I want to tell you about another place I was to out in California and they asked me if I would come and preach at that church. And then the, the pastor who's Hispanic said, um, but you've got to know that uh, we don't have a church. And I said, well, that's not a problem at all. We're in a warehouse. And it's in downtown L.A. And the service, the only time we can get that building is at 10 p.m. on Saturday night. So service will start at 10 p.m. on Saturday night. So I said, you know what, I would love to come, but I want to ride with somebody. I don't want to get lost down there. And so I did, and I want you to know, I walked into that warehouse. We went through a lot of side roads and alleys to get in. I walked in that night, 10 p.m., 500 people there worshiping the Lord. At 10 p.m. that night, the only time they could get that facility. We got out of church at 1.30 in the morning. They told me it was early that I didn't preach long enough. Because a lot of times they're there till 3.30. But do you know what this group of people, many of them are undocumented immigrant workers who are here and they are still caring. And do you know what they do? On Thursdays they have another building that they feed people uh, and they clothe people. And they are helping people with resumes and they're helping people to find jobs. And I thought that night, and they work on the streets because they're right down the area of heavy prostitution and those streets and trafficking happening. And I thought that night as I was with these wonderful people of God, this is where Jesus is. This is where Jesus would be. And this is what he's doing. You see, that never makes the front page of the L.A. Times, but it makes the front page of God's Times. (laughs) And he's blessing them. I want you just to take a look at these facts that I have uh, with on the background this morning. Just read these with me. This is our world today. 
read it with me, 100 million street children in our world. And they aren't just in Ukraine or Cambodia. 100 million street children in the world, but thousands and thousands are in our country. I was out in um, Medford, Oregon, a town of maybe 50,000, 60,000. And they told me in that town that day that they have 5,000 homeless teenagers. And they're called couch hoppers. They, they move from house to house, and they're trying to go to school and trying to make it. Uh, and they just move from house to house uh, because of, of parents that have kicked them out or drug abuse or sexual abuse or whatever is happening in their own homes. We have thousands and thousands right here in the United States of that 100 million street children. I've been in Ukraine. I've worked with children. We started a program in Odessa, Ukraine. And the reason was a young college student, just like you all, I had graduated and gone to, to Odessa to work with uh, InterVarsity. And she contacted me and she said, Joanne, we've got to do something. I just found 60 children living in the sewers. Can we do something? And we responded. And since then, we've been working very diligently in that particular area. Second thing, read with me, 14 million AIDS orphans. Now, one of the things that I want to say this morning is AIDS is still in, in effect you know, we don't hear much about it anymore. Bono is not singing about it much anymore. And we've got to get Bono to get a new song here. Uh, and uh, actually, his organization called me the other day and said, we're going to bring some more people to the table, so we're going to get back on this again. And I said, we'd better. Uh, but it doesn't matter whether Bono sings about it or not. The people of God should be singing about it. <laughs> the people of God still are called to the table, whether celebrities sing about it or not. Every 14 seconds, a child is orphaned by AIDS. And uh, every day, 8,000 people die. However, I have some very good news for you. And that is the rate in this last year, the study that came out, the rate of new infections is going down and the rate of deaths is going down. And that's been since 2002. And I have a little theory here, and that is in about 2002 is when the people of God came to the table and began to really work on this. Rick Warren, in, in a sense, called everyone to the table about this, and in World Hope, we'd already been working at it. And I believe the reason it's going down is the power, transforming power of Christ. You see, what happens when God's people go into a community and begin to work, it isn't only the good that is being done, the wells, the chickens, the medicines, and whatever, but it's also about the mysterious power of the Holy Spirit that's there. And I've had pastors in the villages that we've been working in, in Zambia in particular, say to me, Joanne, we don't know what to think about this, but pe things are changing, people are changing, but the power of God has become so strong, it's put the witch doctors out of business. You see, that's why God is calling us to the table of the world today. And then the next statement, read that out loud with me, 27 million slaves. And we'll talk more about that later. But today, 27 million slaves in the world. That means people that have been bought and sold. And you can look at the protocols that the UN has on, on what constitutes human trafficking. And it is about being bought, sold, coerced, moved, 
etc. All of those, they follow a certain protocol. And so that number comes out of that protocol that the UN has set on what constitutes slavery today. For four main purposes, labor, sex, begging, and body parts. And I have seen all four in the work that I have done. Absolutely something that breaks our heart and breaks the heart of God. Well, let's look at the next one. 115 million unchurched people in North America. Now, that number is a very loose number because if you filled out the survey that said you attended Mass on Christmas Eve, you were considered churched. So that number you could almost double. Next number, 1 billion hungry people worldwide. And that includes this country as well. And you can read the research over and over and over that this number can be changed in our lifetime. It doesn't have to remain that way. Let's go to the next one. One billion people who have never heard the name of Jesus. Now that means they have never heard his name. That means they have never had a choice. We hear numbers of people non-Christian, etc. But these are people who've never even had a choice whether they want to be followers of Jesus or not. It's really hard to wrap our brain around that number. But it is. I, I kind of got my brain wrapped a bit around that in 1996, my first time to Cambodia. And uh, the way we got around in, in, at that time, there were not many cars in the country and you had to ride a motorcycle. And so I know I don't look like a motorcycle mama, but anyway... Um, that's the way you get around. So I just gotten there, and I was to get on this motorcycle, and this guy was to take me someplace, and I'm worried I can't hear the language, and I'd heard about a French woman who'd been kidnapped the week before, and et cetera. So uh, i trying to get on that motorcycle, and somebody's trying to tell him where to take me, and I couldn't figure out what I had to wear a skirt. Uh, at that time, it's okay now in those that country, but at that time, women need to wear a skirt. So I had this skirt, and so you have to ride side saddle. I didn't know what to do with the extra foot. You ever thought about that? You know, you have two feet on one side, and you only have one place to put a foot. So I'm fiddling, 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 whether to put this foot or that foot or whatever. And suddenly, the man took off, and I grabbed him with all I had and laid up against him and to save my life. And we rode down the streets of Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And when he got to where he, was, he dropped me off, and I went to get my money, and he wouldn't even take my money, and he took off. I thought, what in the world? This is a weird thing. Well, when I got into where I was supposed to be, they said... Uh, Oh, Joanne, you just did the worst cultural faux pas possible. You're never to touch the man on the motorcycle unless he's your man. And, uh, well, I, oh, my goodness. So I was not his woman. He was not my man. And I had embarrassed this man all the way down the streets of Phnom Penh, Cambodia, with this American woman laying on his back. So I never got a ride from that guy again. He totally avoided me in every way, shape, or form. So they sent another one another time. And so that time I learned how to, where to put my foot, how to hang on, and not touch the man. So he's telling me, then as we're going along, he spoke a little English. He wanted to try it out. And he said, this is the palace. And, this is, and I thought that day, I wonder if he's ever heard of Jesus. I wonder if he's ever heard Jesus' name. And so I asked him, do you know Jesus? And I could tell it was blank. And I know sometimes that's a given name, in, particularly in the Philippines. And uh, so I said, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
kind of went on and on. And finally, I'll never forget his response. You want to laugh at first, and yet, at the same time, this is where you can wrap your brain around this. He turned around and looked at me, and he said, Ma'am, I am so sorry, but I just don't know where he lives. You see, he, Jesus, all he knew was I wanted to go to some house where Jesus lived. And I got my brain wrapped a bit about this that day. Never heard Jesus' name. And then 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. And we hear this and we see it on the news and we're struggling constantly on how do we relate in the all varieties of Islam. I think that's something we need to realize. There are many, many varieties of Islam and many different beliefs of Islam and different, in fact, different interpretations of the Quran and different, there's the Quran that came out of Medina and the Quran that came out of Mecca. And so there's, there's a variety of kinds of things to really understand regarding Islam. The world is filled 1.5 billion. But I want you to know the God of love that you sang about this morning is breaking through in the Islamic world in very powerful ways. Breaking through the subconscious of people. And they're having visions and dreams. There are 1 million Muslims coming to Jesus every year, 75% through visions and dreams. And it's our God who's breaking through the subconscious and telling people they're loved. And they're going to find who is this person. I'm compelled to find who this person is. A friend of mine was sharing that they were showing the Jesus film in the Middle East someplace. And it was a very difficult time that they had. And they prayed and they rented a theater. The theater was filled that night. And they began to show the Jesus film. And about 10 minutes into the Jesus film, 10 men from different parts of that auditorium all stood up at the same time and said, That's him. He came to my room last night. And every one of them had seen the same thing. They had been awakened. A light woke them up. And there stood Jesus. I thought it was interesting to say Jesus on the film. I don't know how God did all that. But uh, anyway, it was, the, it was the spirit of Jesus that was recognizable. And God is moving in very powerful ways in this world. I was up in Pakistan uh, right after the earthquake uh, about... Um, what, about three or four years ago now? It's a great big earthquake that took place, if you remember, up in the northwest frontier province of Pakistan. Actually, it's where bin Laden is, and I really was trying to find him when I was there. <laughs> I thought, why not? $20 million? I'll see if I can find this man myself. Nobody else seems to be able to find him. And uh, I didn't find him, but I sure did look. I want you to know. <laughs> um, but I'll never forget being up there. And actually, that earthquake was 7.9 and lasted for 90 seconds. And they said those Himalaya mountains literally just moved like this up there. But I'll never forget being in an Islamic school. And we, through World Hope, we had funded tents and all this kind of thing. And our Pakistani people are the ones who had done it. I had just gone up to see what they wanted me to come and see what they'd done and just meet the people. And I was glad to do that. And uh, the... Um, so they were wanted his children to be able to go back to school, and so the children had gone back to school, and so they were uh, in these tents and so forth. And I remember this, the head of this Islamic school. He, of course, because of his uh, religion, could not look at me in the face, but he kept his eyes down, and he said to me, well, I just want you to know that we hate Americans. I thought, well, okay. <laughs> and then his second statement is, we hate Christians. And I'm looking around, where is my exit out of this place? 
But then he said something very, very compelling. He said, he lifted his eyes just a little bit, but he said, but we like you. And you know what I thought of the words of Jesus? Love your enemies. Feed your enemies. Do good to your enemies. Jesus had something to say about peacemaking here. I've never been able to get away from that particular time. Why? He didn't really know Americans, only he'd been propagandized by them. He didn't know who Christians were. He'd been propagandized about who they were. But somehow, when he came face to face with someone who had loved him, that love that we sang about this morning. That's our God at work in the world today in many varieties. Well, now that you are properly uh, depressed with the rest of the world, what in the world would Jesus have to say about this? Let's look at this. Read this out loud with me. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now, those very words are in the context, and it's in John, the 14th chapter, are in the context of a conversation that prior to these words, Philip who I would describe, describe as probably one of the more quiet disciples of Jesus. But Philip is struggling, and he comes to Jesus, prior verses of this, and he says, Jesus, I just still can't believe. Are you really the Son of God? I'm really having a hard time grasping that. Are you really the Son of God? And Jesus responds back to Philip and says, Well, Philip, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. We are one. And then Jesus says some very fascinating things. He says, but Philip, you can almost hear the exasperation in Jesus' voice. And he says, but Philip, I want to tell you, if you can't believe that, can't you at least believe on the evidence of the miracles? Now just think about this. Philip had been with Jesus when 5,000 were fed. Philip had been with Jesus when he saw ears open, when he saw eyes open. Philip had been with Jesus all this time. And Jesus is finally saying, can't you at least believe on the evidence of the miracles? And then I would imagine Philip standing there listening and speaking. And Jesus then says these words, but I'm telling you, Philip, you know what? You're going to do what I've been doing. Now, just that alone should have flattened Philip right on the ground. If he really couldn't believe that Jesus was, was the Son of God. And then Jesus says, you're going to do what I've been doing. And he's, he's been around Jesus and knows what Jesus is doing. And then Jesus just kicks it up another notch. And he says, you know what, Philip? You're going to do greater things than I have done. And that last clause in that sentence is the key. Because I am going to the Father. What does that mean? Philip has no idea at that moment what that means. But he continues to walk with Jesus. And he walks with Jesus to the crucifixion. The trials and the crucifixion. And he's walking with Jesus and he's seeing all this. And do you think it looks like greater things? I don't think so. I think he's thinking, how in the world can I get out of this? I signed up for something I had no idea. And it doesn't look very good. And it looks pretty dark. And it looks pretty impossible. And then the resurrection happens. 
Now, that doesn't just cure at all because Philip still doesn't know what that really means. The resurrection takes place. And here is Jesus, and he's walking with Jesus down the road, and he's seeing him, the resurrected Jesus. But still, what does that mean? What's that going to do in my life? And then, right before the ascension, Jesus tells Philip and the disciples, now I want you to go to this room, and I want you to go up there, and I want you to pray, and I want you to be there until something happens. And you'll know. And you know, many times that's our life. We would like a prescription dropped down from heaven that says step one, step two, step three, step four. I don't know about you. I would. Wouldn't you? But you know what? Then I would no longer be dependent or be listening on to God. I would be listening to myself and charging ahead. And he said, stay in that room, and they did. And those 120 people were in that room. And I think when they got there, they didn't like each other in that room. They didn't all love each other. In fact, I don't, you know, they didn't sit there and play crazy eights. They needed to repent to each other because they were angry. Don't you know they were really angry with Peter? You know, look what you did, and you de- betrayed us all. Look, I'm sure they had interpersonal relationships like we've never, problems, interpersonal relationship problems like we can't imagine in that room. And there they were all stuck together. <laughs> and God began to move on them, and they began to realize that they needed to focus not on themselves, but on what Jesus had said, wait and pray. And that day, a wind blew through that place, such as never happened before. The breath of God. Now, what really is the breath of God? Let's go back to Genesis. And we find in Genesis that God breathed on the chaos of the universe. And order came. And God spoke. And God said, this is good. And then we see the breath of God coming into those dry bones in Ezekiel. And all those bones getting connected. Hip bone and backbone or however you guys know anatomy, I don't. And whatever got connected together. And God spoke. And God said, this is life. And then we see the breath of God when Jesus comes up out of the water of his baptism and God speaks and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus speaks then throughout all of his ministry. But something different happened on that day, as we know, Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit blew through that place, the breath of God blew through that place the scriptures tell us fire was on their heads they were cleansed they were they they were purified literally delivered from all the past that they'd had and there were four million people on the street that day from all over the world literally All over the world. Four million people. More people came to the Feast of Pentecost than they did for the Feast of Passover because the weather was better. 
We haven't changed at all in any of that, how we worship, huh? Uh, but the weather was better. So there were 4 million people on the street from, from, from northern Africa, clear out to eastern Turkey, uh, clear through Europe, all there in Jerusalem that day. And what happened? They could have stayed in that room because while the love of God and for each other was very powerful, but they didn't. They went out on the streets and started proclaiming the love of Jesus to everyone that they saw. And they spoke. God did not thunder from heaven. They spoke. And my friends, for 2,000 years now, God is not thundering out of heaven. We are speaking. Do you get that? What an awesome, awesome privilege, responsibility for now the Holy Spirit in us. And we are speaking. And yes, doing greater things. Now I want to go back to Philip a minute. If you follow on in the 8th chapter of Acts, you find out that Philip gets it. Greater things. Philip goes to one of the most remote places in Israel at that time, Palestine. And here he encounters some magicians. But the power of God moves through him and those magicians are stopped. And then you follow on a little bit more with Philip's life. And you find, what is it? He meets a man from Ethiopia. And the gospel, and the man is reading Isaiah, and he feels compelled by the Spirit to stop. Philip does. Goes and talks to this man from Ethiopia. And the gospel of Jesus Christ from Philip's own mouth goes to Africa for the first time. Greater things will you do than I have done, Jesus said, because I go to the Father. That is our message today to you. Now, the Holy Spirit in you. Greater things will you do. It's hard to wrap our brain around that one also. And all the pain and suffering that we see in the world, God wants to speak and move through you in that. But our Lord never tells us anything but what he gives us a way to do it. And if you'll look at that very next verse, I have to get my glasses on here. That very next verse after greater things, he says this. Verse 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the son may bring glory to the father. Ask. That word ask is in this discourse of Jesus eight times in these next few chapters. And you can go through the Old Testament and you can find the word ask throughout the Old Testament. And Jesus himself over and over, not just in this particular discourse, talks about the word ask. Now I've heard people say to me, oh, I just want to praise the Lord and I don't want to ask. Well, you know what? I thought about my children. I have four children. If they just praise me all the time and I'd like to hear that once in a while. But if they never ask for anything, I would never know who they are. Now, think about that. When you were a baby, you cried, or some of you, and you have children here, your babies cry immediately. That's an ask. You know, do they need their diapers changed? Do they need to be fed? What is it? And then as they grow a little more, they say their first words. And generally, it's an ask. Or many times before they speak, they're saying, uh, uh, uh. You say, you want this, you want this, you want this, you know, all of that. But you're knowing who that child is by the asking. And the conversation continues. 
And as you get older and older and older, and my children are all adults now, and we still ask. In fact, one of them called me last night at 11 o'clock. He's a lawyer. I don't know why in the world he's asking me. But anyway, uh, and so the ask is still there. What do you think, Mom? What do you think about this? You know, and then I'm calling them and saying, what do you think about blah, blah, blah. We know each other more and more as we ask. That's the same relationship we have with the Lord. Same relationship we have with Jesus. As we ask, he teaches us. He asked us, will you do blah, blah, blah. And he teaches us. That's the relationship, the ask. I've had many, many asks in my life. And I could spend all day telling you about them. But I want to talk to you one specifically this morning. It's 1996, again, my first time to Cambodia. I was there uh, to see how the church could work and what we could do. And just before I left, a man who, a Chinese missionary who happens to be Chinese, uh, was there and he said, Joanne, I want to take you out to this street. We don't even know what to call it. But he said, last year there were only 3,000 children, and today they tell me there are 15,000. And so there were two other women with me, and we walked down that long, dusty road. And there we found wooden structures, white plastic chairs, children sitting on those chairs for sale. The word human trafficking or modern-day slavery had not made its way in the world. It might have been basically, I checked not long ago to see the coining of it, and somebody was thinking about it in 1996, but it had never broken loose. And there we were. 15,000. My heart, I took a couple of pictures and some, a pimp came out to grab the camera and I was able to save it and walked on down and finally our hearts were so broken we stopped. Three women and the missionary and looked at that and thought we've got to pray. What in the world, we're faced with this, what in the world are we talking about here? And I'll never forget that day as three old ladies and a tired old missionary. And that is a very weak group. (laughs) We stood there, joined hands, and prayed, Lord, what would you have us do in this situation? This is overwhelming. This is impossible. But we open ourselves to you today. I'll never forget that day. Talk about a... David and Goliath, three old ladies, a tired old missionary, very weak. World Hope had just started. World Hope was, well, it consisted of me, a computer, a desk, in a bedroom, in a parsonage in Warrington, Missouri. Now, it doesn't get any weaker than that. And someone had said to me, oh, maybe World Hope should do this glibly. And I thought, you don't even know who we are. We, this is crazy. You are nuts. Jesus said, ask. Ask. That next day, someone came to us, and they had a a family, and we gave them a little money to start a business and thought, well, that will probably uh, help them not to be at risk of their children being sold. I thought, that's the end. That's it. Maybe that's what God had in mind, you know. I had no idea what God had in mind. I came back about a year later. I wrote a story about it and put that picture in a, in a little magazine. About a year later, someone wrote me, a woman wrote me and said, I can't get away from this. I have some money. Would you, if I send you some money, can you do something about this? And I thought, well, 
maybe. I'm going to be honest with her. I don't know what I can do, but I'll, I'll try. So at that time, by this time, we'd moved to Washington, D.C., and uh, so I had some staff, and so I sent someone over to Cambodia, and I said, now, look, we're not going to be heroes. Just see what somebody else is already doing, and let's just join them in this. And so we did. And there were some people who were there uh, who were running a home, and they had been working on the streets for years, and they were doing some things, and we helped them get a better facility. Came back. I thought, well, I guess that's the end. But do you know what? I had no idea that was the year that President Bush was going to make a speech at the U.N., about this I had no idea at that time that that was going to be the place where they would put a whole division in the State Department in that I had no idea that somebody would call me and ask me to come and be a part of it I had no idea that the State Department would say we want to help you we want to help fund some things can you expand what you're doing I had no idea and God did and expanded until now World Hope is working in 10 countries regarding human trafficking. We've developed training programs gone across the world in this whole kind of thing. I had no idea that day. Three old ladies, a tired old missionary on a street corner in the midst of the greatest darkness and evil imaginable. I just want you to know, last May, I went down that street again. And I want to tell you what, that one particular brothel that was one of the worst ones, guess what it is today? It's a church and a community center. (laughs) Wonderful. I wept when I walked in there. And as a Cambodian pastor who was saved and and saved from Buddhism and went to Bible school and said, God's called me to the darkest place in this city. I'm going in there. And he did. And he took his family and moved in there. And that thing has been transformed. And uh, and then he has a thing next door that's called the Lord's Gym. And uh, it's got all kinds of weightlifting stuff. And he said to me, you know what? Traffickers come in here. I said, really? Uh, He said, yeah. He said, "Uh, I'm talking to him. And I said, oh. And he didn't understand the word believer. I said, are they believers? That didn't translate into Kamai. And uh, he said, well, I don't know. But he said, um, they come to Bible study every week. They come to church every week. They no longer go to Vietnam and buy girls anymore. They are construction workers. And I thought, "Uh, they're believers. (laughs) They've been transformed. That's the power of God, my friends. Ask. Ask. You have no idea what God wants to do through you until you begin to ask. And don't be afraid of the ask. Probably a person has impacted me the most in this whole field. Her name is Sriman. Sri was 15 years old when she was married. She lived in the rural area of Cambodia. One day, her husband said to her, I'm going to take you to the city. Illiterate. She was thrilled. She'd never been to the city before. And so they got to the city. She'd never seen tall buildings. She'd never seen cars. And she got to the city. They checked in at a guest house. And her husband said, I'll be right back. She waited, waited, waited for her husband. He didn't come back. Finally, she went to the owner of the guest house and said, Where is my husband? And the owner of the guest house looked at her and laughed and said, Your husband is gone, and he just sold you to me for $200. This is a brothel, not a guest house. She was in that brothel four years. Tortured, horrendous stories, 
made to do indescribable things. And one night, literally, miraculously, she escaped. And those are very difficult to escape out of because it's right through the front door. The back end is cemented in and you have to go out the front. But God planted and parted the way and she escaped. She went to the first home that we helped get started there, the White Lotus home. There she was welcomed for who she was. They loved her. And she told them, she said, I've always been searching for the real God. Isn't that interesting? Raised Buddhist, illiterate, but somehow deep in her heart, she knew there had to be a real God out there someplace. And she soon came to know who Jesus was. And Jesus' love so filled her. And she so expressed his love beyond imagination. It was marvelous. I've never seen anyone where the light of Jesus so shined through one's face. I was there, uh, and uh, she was, we, I had a group of people, and we were teaching each other different kinds of skills. And she was teaching me how to spin cotton and weave a rug. I'm a horrible spinner. You have to sit on a little can about that big. I'm too tall, too fat. Kept falling off. And she would put her hand over on my hand and just laugh. And I looked into her very bony face that day, this light of Jesus just beaming out of her face. 58 pounds she weighed, dying of AIDS. She was marvelous. And they told me that the week before they had taken her to the doctor just to give her, her vitamins and help her to, to in her d dying days to die more comfortably. And after the doctor had given her the treatment, she looked up in the face of that Buddhist doctor and said, I love Jesus with all my heart. The power of Jesus' love. He immediately put his head on her tiny little shoulder and started crying and said, I want to know your Jesus. It was fascinating. On that same trip that time, I got a call from the State Department and uh, in uh, the U.S. Embassy in Cambodia, and they said, um, uh, the ambassador is here from the United States, and he'd like to have breakfast with you. Uh, and I said, well, great. I'd like to, can I invite a bunch of people? <laughs> I thought I might as well spend U.S. dollars wisely here. So uh, I, the people that I wanted to invite were all the people from faith-based groups that were working there. And so they said, sure. So I did and invited them. He happens to be Jewish. He's a leader, and, uh, but very loving and very caring and wonderful. And so he met all the Christian groups working in Cambodia at that time because we really had expanded and doing a lot of things. And so after that meeting that day, he said, uh, I'd like to um, come out and see some of the groups, what you're doing. And that was, <laughs> that was my secret plan, that he would come out and be able to look. And so he did. And he chose to go to the White Lotus home that morning. And uh, he did. And he was impressed with what they were doing and, and how the rehabilitation was taking place and the skills that were, these women were learning so they could learn to support themselves and, and not be drawn back into this bitter trade again, et cetera. And so he said to me, can I hear some of the stories? And I said, well, sure, we'll have to check with the people who run it. But they, you don't just blurt out the stories. We, women have dignity, and so they go to another room and they tell their story. So he, they just happened to select Sri. Sri told her story. On the way back to the hotel that day, he had tears running down his face, and he said to me, her story really impacted me. And, you know, my friends, I thought that day, this is interesting because I could, there were stories, far worse stories as far as torture and all kinds of things that would be, make your hair stand up. But there was something about her story that impacted him. What was it? Jesus. The love of Jesus. Greater things because I go to the Father. The spirit that's in her. Well, I came back to the States, and a few months later, I got word that she had passed away. Sri had died. So I thought, well, I think I'll just call the ambassador at 
the State Department, just let him know. So I did, and I said, Ambassador, I just wanted to let you know that Sri Mon from Cambodia passed away. He was very silent on the other end, and I thought, this is, um, I just see maybe he doesn't remember because he's all over the world, meets thousands of people. And pretty soon he came back, and he, I could tell he had a sniffle kind of in his voice, and he said, she really impacted me. Again, I thought, this is very interesting. Isn't it? When God works, it's kind of interesting. You can't figure it all out. Well, a few months later, one Sunday night, I got a call at home and living in Washington at that time and said, Joanne, we're getting ready to have a big event at the State Department. All the diplomatic corps is going to be there. Half the cabinet is going to be there. Big event. Salute to the 21st century abolitionist. Condoleezza Rice, who was then the Secretary of State, is going to speak. Two congressmen are going to speak. The ambassador is going to speak. And we were just kind of sitting around tonight and thought, wouldn't it be neat? Let's just have a prayer. Could we have Joanne come and do a prayer? So I guess prayers are decoration of some kind. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I said, sure. So I went to this event, and I prayed at the very beginning. Uh, Condoleezza Rice spoke. The congressman spoke. The ambassador spoke. And he talked about 100 and some countries that he'd been able to get laws changed and great things that he'd been able to do in that position uh, in the State Department. And then he said, but I want to conclude my remarks today with someone whose story has impacted me the most. Now, I'm expecting to hear about some president of some country, some place, or some big political person. And then he said, and when I nearly fell out of my chair, and I had to hold back the tears, and I didn't do very well, he said her name, Sri Mon, the White Lotus home, Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And there, my friends, he told her story to the most powerful people in the world. And I had to go back to this very verse. It didn't matter that she was illiterate. It didn't matter that she'd been abused and abused in some of the most horrible ways. It didn't matter that she was from a little village in Cambodia. It didn't matter that nobody knew her name. What spoke to that group was literally the power of Jesus in this woman. Greater things will you do than I have done because I go to the Father. The Holy Spirit literally pouring forth from this woman. And I ask you this morning, what is your ask today he's waiting for that ask it's impossible in your eyes but it's possible in his